podcast family, the traditional and historic Parkland management protocol for gestational diabetes was a little bit different than how most people do it, okay? Let me explain. Yes, the two-step process is still done. It's the 50-gram one-hour followed by the 100-gram three-hour when indicated. But unlike most locations that do a one- or two-week interval of diet and nutritional therapy and counseling to see if they can maintain their blood sugars, Parkland always said, hey, if that fasting blood sugar was abnormal on the three-hour test, if that was one of the abnormal values plus another value that made the true diagnosis of GDM, then you would be called A2 diabetic and you would be started immediately back then on insulin. Now, of course, metformin is an option. But the idea was is that you didn't wait one or two weeks to see if diet worked or nutrition worked because hey, if you got fasting hyperglycemia on your three-hour test, you were likely going to fail. And that was the historic uh, and anecdotal experience uh, of Parkland. That was the Parkland protocol. By the way, how many Parkland formulas are there? You know, I'm so proud of that. I'm so proud of my alma mater. I mean, there's the Parkland burn formula. There's the Parkland management for uh, intrapartum uh, insulin drip for insulin-dependent diabetics in labor. That's the Parkland protocol. There's a lot of stuff that came out of there. But this one was always a little unique. And I always learned that, well, if you had fasting hyperglycemia on your three-hour, whether you were using the Carpenter Cowson or the National Diabetic Data Group, then you were called A2. But most people say, no, if you have two abnormal values on your GDM, regardless of what they are, you're going to get the traditional evaluation, which is one to two weeks of diet and exercise counseling with nutritional and dietary input. And then if your sugars aren't controlled during that interval, then you would begin medication. And that is when you would be called A2 GDM. And if diet controlled it, then you would be called A1 GDM, right? Diet controlled versus medication controlled. So first you got the diagnosis, hey, you failed your GDM, a three-hour challenge test, your diagnostic test, and now you have diabetes. Now, we don't know if you're A1 or A2 yet. We got to see the one to two weeks to see how it happens. But the problem is, is that you got to wait one or two weeks before some kind of formal treatment. Now, the rebuttal is, of course, well, diet and nutritional counseling and exercise encouragement is some kind of intervention. So true. But here's where I'm trying to get at. The whole reason I'm bringing up the old Parkland protocol is that is fasting hyperglycemia on that three-hour test really a predictor of the need for medication down the road? And if it is, well, maybe we can skip the one to two-week delay and just start right away in addition to the nutritional counsel, the dietary input, and the encouragement for exercise. Does that make sense? So to be very clear, the Parkland Historic Protocol for GDM was, hey, if one of the abnormal values on three hour is abnormal, you're A2, boom, you automatically go to medical therapy. Historically, that included insulin. Now, of course, there's metformin as an, as a, as an option, as an alternative. Well, there's brand new data that, again, isn't new at all because <laughs> a similar publication had been published back in 2008. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. But this was just published on February the 17th, 2024. All right. February the 17th out of AJOG MFM. The title of this publication is 
predicting the need for medication in gestational diabetes using the 100 gram glucose tolerance test. Well, exactly as we're talking about. So I feel like when I read this, and obviously it's going to, you, if you can't figure it out by now, yes, there's some validity. It, they are justified in using fasting hyperglycemia as a potential flag that they're going to need medication down the road. Oh, I just feel like Parkland is just kicking up, putting in that old Randy Travis song, I Told You So. Now, if you just said to yourself, who the heck is Randy Travis? Please do not tell me that because I will reach over this microphone and slap you on the head. Are you kidding me? I mean, Randy Travis. Come on, y'all. Do y'all not know who Randy Travis is? I mean, coming from Texas, Randy Travis was like a king. You may think that I'm talking foolish. You've heard that I'm wild and I'm free. Randy Travis lives in San Antonio. Poor guy. I mean, he's had some bad years, but in his younger days, man, that guy could sing. So I don't know what really happened to him. I know he had um, this terrible car accident. He had some brain injury, but oh my goodness. I mean, for somebody who sang contemporary country music like he did, that loss, I mean, just his memory's gone, his state of health is gone. It's just tragic, whatever happened to Randy Travis. Why are we talking about Randy Travis again? Oh, oh, that's right. <laughs> I told you so. So that was an old Randy Travis song, I told you so. Uh, but Parkland was, is vindicated again on, on some of the stuff that took a lot of slack on. I can't believe you're not even giving these women a chance. They just have fasting hyperglycemia and you put them automatically on medication. I mean, what's that about? Well... There is data, and this isn't new because this was actually released in 2008 by another group of authors. But here's the catch. But does quick start of medication after a diagnosis of GDM actually change overall composite outcomes? And that's the catch. Does it change composite neonatal outcomes? There's no question that better glycemic control helps prevent excessive fetal weight gain and helps reduce macrosomia. We know that. But what about other things, composite neonatal outcomes? That's a different story. So in this episode, we're going to tackle this new publication again that just came out earlier this month. Remember, this is in AJOGMFM, the pink journal. And we're going to talk about this study. We're going to relate it back to the 2008 publication. And then we're going to get into something that came out at the end of last year, the end of 2023. Actually, it was out October the 3rd, 2023 in JAMA Network, which is, hey, we start Early metformin in GDM, does it make a difference? But there's a catch to that study. And I'm not going to tell you what that catch is now, but I'll explain in just a moment. All right, guys, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about GDM. And now that we've laid the foundation of that, along with the Parkland Protocol, and we even explained who Randy Travis is, let's get to work. You may think that I'm... Love that I feel for you always will be 
just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACOG right now does recommend testing for gestational diabetes with a two-step process. The 50 gram as a screen and then the diagnostic 100 gram glucose tolerance test. And then once GDM is diagnosed, patients are encouraged to have diabetic education and learn how to check their blood sugars for any for one to two weeks. And then based on that glycemic control, then either leave them on that lifestyle modification or add medication. But as we discussed in the intro, that could be a one to two week gap. Now, before I get into this study, I just want to review what, what the goals are here for, for blood sugar management, all right? So remember that ADA and ACOG state that the goal is a fasting blood sugar of 95 or less and a one-hour blood sugar of 140 or less or a two-hour of 120. Those are the, the targets, all right? Now, the question that people have is, well, how many targets do you need to be considered a failure? That depends on who you read. Some say it's got to be 50% uh, to prevent overtreatment. Some say 50%. That's way too much. I mean, if you have 30% that are out of range, you need medical therapy. So I I do like the 30%. I think it's fine. I have used the 50%, but it's all part of the holistic picture, which includes how old is the patient? What is her past history? What is her BMI? Are there other comorbidities? morbidities. Um, Has she had a history of PCOS, which makes her insulin resistant? So all those factors go into that. But the most conservative estimate of how much out of range do you have to be before you start medication is uh, 30% of the values to, if you want to be very liberal about it and give them more slack, be a little loosey-goosey, then it's 50%. Um, but there's nothing wrong with uh, with convention and mainstream uh, thought processes that it, it's 30% that are off target, then you should begin medication. Now, remember, that's one to two week uh, spread. The idea was rather than waiting the one to two weeks, do that. Do the lifestyle modification, do the diet nutritional counseling for sure. But if you have fasting hyperglycemia, the thought is that you, you probably have a baseline insufficiency that's going to be made worse postprandial, so you're going to likely fail. And that was the thought of Parkland. Plus, Parkland was like, look, we got too many people running around, too many interns, uh, too many residents. Um, there's too many people. We need to have a uniform way of dealing with this. Plus, the patients are lost to follow up. At least they know that, that they're, they're on medication. And so the idea was that if you had fasting hyperglycemia on the three-hour plus one more value, not only did you have the diagnosis, but you would start medical therapy. Okay, that's that's the whole thought process behind that. And, and it does make sense. We know that fasting hyperglycemia is an independent risk factor for some adverse uh, neonatal outcomes. Now, according to some data, if you have one 
abnormal value in the three hour. Remember, that also is a flag. That's called impaired glucose tolerance. So then there's been several publications back and forth. Well, which one, which one matters more? Is it the fasting? If that fasting is the isolated number, that's abnormal. Is that bad? Or is it worse if it's a postprandial value? The answer is yes, because basically you're splitting hairs here. The idea is one abnormal value, regardless of what it is, is problematic. You have a higher rate of of fetal uh, abnormalities, meaning a large for gestational age and macrosomia, which leads into labor dysfunction, shoulder dystocia. So it is a factor. But based on the, the even though it's conflicting in the literature, it seems to be that postprandial values that are higher seem to be the more problematic. All right. So does it matter to have fast and hyperglycemia as the lone abnormal value on the three hour? Absolutely. Any single value on the three hour should get a diagnosis of impaired glucose tolerance. And they need the same nutritional counseling. Hey, look, you dodged a bullet. You don't have a formal diagnosis, but your, your body's kind of freaking out from the human placental lactogen. Eat well, exercise. You may want to check your sugars. Uh, just just do something. Be proactive. All right. But again, based on some of the data, it seems that the if the single abnormal value, which is not what we're talking about here, right? we're talking about a true diagnosis of GDM, but I'm just kind of diverted and just making this point here, that if you have one abnormal value, don't ignore it. And it seems to be more problematic if that isolated value is on the postprandial side uh, than the fasting, but even fasting is not completely innocent either. I know this is not what I wanted to focus on, but, but I can't help myself. So l- look at this data that was presented at SMFM back in 2013. Guys, this is 10 years ago. This is how long we, we've known this thing, all right? Now, this is, I'm, I'm talking about a poster presentation. Again, it got published, of course, as a supplement in the gray journal, AJOG, which is where all the posters from SMFM go. But back in 2013, the, l- listen to this title. It's exactly what we're talking about. One abnormal value in the glucose tolerance test. Does it matter which one? Oh, that's exactly what we're talking about. And what they found is, look, it, it, yes, one abnormal value has issues. There's no question. Fasting abnormal value has issues. One abnormal postprandial value has issues. But the one that tends to have worse issues is if that one isolated value is on the postprandial side. So let me give you some of these um, some of these percentages of what they found. Again, this was a poster, not a full manuscript, but it's still helpful information. Right. So if you had this again, all they did is took a look at the data, those who had one abnormal value under three hour and then looked at adverse issues. Well, let's take a look at cesarean section rate. Well, if the one abnormal value was on postprandial, they ended up with a 44% who had labor dystocia compared to 34% if the isolated value that was abnormal was fasting. Okay, that was 34 for fasting, 44% on postprandial. Uh, birth weight greater than 4,000 grams. It was 10.9% if one abnormal value was postprandial on the three-hour, but the birth weight greater than 4,000 was 4% with a fasting. Okay, so again, these are still, even the fasting value is still abnormal. It's 4%, which is pretty high, but that's lower than the 11% if the isolated value on the three hour was postprandial. Uh, let's take a look. They had here um, cesarean section rates 43% with the isolated value postprandial, and then uh, it was 30% in the fasting group. Now, here's another one, guys shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia. 
the absolute percentile was 3.6%. Guys, 3.6%. That's a that's a big number for shoulder dystocia if one isolated value was found in its postprandial state, but it was 1.59% in the uh, isolated fasting blood sugar group. Does that make sense? So you've got abnormal issues on both sides. If the one single value is fasting, yes, that's an issue. If the single abnormal value in a three hour is postprandial, that's a bigger issue. So if you're ever asked, hey, if you have a single abnormal value on a GTT, is that bad? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is. Uh, and it doesn't matter if it's fasting or postprandial, but it seems to have worse outcomes if it is on the postprandial side. Because impaired glucose tolerance still raises the risk. Mainly, the adverse issues have to do with bigger babies, right? That gives you uh, labor dystocia, increased need for C-section, and of course, uh, birth trauma and shoulder dystocia. NICU admissions... Uh, oddly enough, was was a little bit different. The only one that favored, in other words, was higher for the fasting uh, blood sugar as an isolated value was NICU admissions. 25% had NICU admissions with the isolated fasting value compared to 15% if the isolated abnormal value on the GTT was postprandial. Right, so most things said, oof, you're much, much worse if your single isolated value is postprandial, except for NICU admissions where it was higher on the fasting side. Again, this was back in, in uh, over 10 years ago in 2013, and it was a, a poster number 286 that was published in the Gray Journal. Podcast family, hold, let's park there for a minute because we just stated that one abnormal value on the GTT can have some adverse issues, right? And it seemed to be more so on the postprandial side, but that the fasting value, when that's isolated, uh, isn't innocent either. But again, don't you love a good controversy? I mean, if anything we've learned, guys, and we're trying to highlight here is that, look, this is why we're here. That's why we do what we do. We love doing this podcast because we love taking different opinions and different viewpoints and then trying to make sense of data, especially, it's easy to do when everyone's walking in the same direction. But when things are a little conflicting, you got to put it all into one global piece, all right? So let me contrast what we just said with a different <laughs> with a different poster that was published in the supplement in the Green Journal um, that came out in April 2020. Okay, so this was, again, this was a separate poster presentation uh, that was presented uh, through ACOG. This was published in the Green Journal. And listen to this title, An Elevated Fasting GTT doesn't increase adverse outcomes compared with other GTT elevations, end quote. Now, don't you, again, I've said this before. Man, I hate when they put that answer into what your, your, your the spoiler of the whole uh, poster or manuscript uh, vibe into the title. I mean, then great. Why am I going to read the abstract or read the, the manuscript? You told me what the whole damn thing is right there. Uh, it's like going to a movie and going and, and the movie is, ooh, a suspenseful mystery. The butler did it. I mean, well, damn, don't tell me that. I mean, let me, let me read it. Let me build up the suspense. Let me dissect it. But no. So this title is an elevated fasting GTT doesn't increase adverse outcomes compared with other GTT elevations. Okay. So we have one in 20, we had that previous publication uh, that we just covered that's saying, uh, yeah, one abnormal value is kind of legit. I mean, that's that's not good. Pay attention to that. And then we have this one from 2020 going, um, yeah, well, maybe not so much. So, okay, 2013, 
Fasting is abnormal. 2020, fasting, meh. Now, it didn't say it's innocent. It said it still has, it doesn't do any worse. It doesn't have worse outcomes compared to one abnormal GTT. So in this review, this was retrospective. Now, here's what's a little odd. Listen to this. This was a retrospective group who completed the glucose tolerance test between 23 to 32 weeks. That's already got me, that's already my pet peeve because the damn thing is between 24 and 28 weeks. I've covered that many times. If you're doing it at a range, what does that mean? Is it a real diagnosis? What is a normal value? I don't know. So this was a retrospective review for women who had the oral glucose tolerance test from 23 to 32 weeks. So a little early and a little late. So deal with that as you will. I'm, I'm just leaving that there. But the composite primary maternal outcome, remember composite, meaning let's put all that crap together and then see if it's worse. The composite primary maternal outcome included preeclampsia, cesarean, operative vaginal delivery, perinatal lacerations, and composite neonatal outcomes was then calculated as a secondary outcome. So the main thing is looking at mom's outcome. And what they found was, and this was a pretty, I mean, the numbers were good. I mean, it was 909 women met inclusion, 252 had an elevated fasting blood sugar, uh, and 657 had a non-fasting isolated abnormal value. Okay, so these are all one abnormal values comparing those who have isolated fasting and isolated postprandial. Exactly what we're talking about here in this little section, okay? Uh, And what they found was the primary outcome did not differ between the groups. So APGAR score less than 7 was higher with the elevated fasting blood sugar at 9.1 compared to 2.6. So that was one that was more significant. Well, of course, APGAR suck. But nonetheless... Uh, the other factors really didn't have any difference at all. So it doesn't say that the the fasting is innocent. It just says it's not any worse. It didn't do uh, any uh, uh, any more damage than the one isolated value being postprandial. So the take-home message, guys, is one abnormal value is a big deal. Uh, fasting may be less than the postprandial, but don't ignore it. Uh, it's still impaired glucose tolerance and they're still at risk mainly of macrosomic issues. So anyway, I just wanted to highlight those two. I found those interesting from 2013. Uh, and then this other one from more recently from May, I'm sorry, from April uh, 2020, uh, one from the gray and then the other from the green. Well, now that we've deviated slightly on that, because we're talking about people who have two abnormal values and get the formal diagnosis of GDM, not just the diagnosis of impaired glucose tolerance, okay? Now, this publication, again, whose manuscript was published this month, February 2024, actually, if some of you read this before and like, hey, that sounds familiar, uh, well, it, it should be familiar because it actually was published as a supplement in AJOG back in January 2022, all right? Uh, and that was, that was two years ago when the poster was first presented. So that poster has now been turned into a manuscript, okay? So you'd be like, wait a minute, I thought I, I read this before. Yes, you may have seen the poster. It was at SMFM, uh, January 2022, published in the supplement, but this is the full manuscript. So we're, I'm just going to give you the highlights of this, and then we're going to dive into, does it matter that we start treatment right away based on that fasting value and one other abnormal value on a GTT, or should we just wait? Or wh- What is the overall outcomes different there, okay? But yes, the abstract was originally published uh, after it was presented at SMFM January 2022. 
This was not a prospective study. This is a review of women who were diagnosed with GDM at a tertiary academic center between 2012 and 2017. Remember, this was first published as an abstract in 2022, and now the full manuscript in 2024. It takes a while to get these things up and out, guys. Look how long it took. But And the end wasn't like thousands of patients, but it's still helpful. This was an N of 312 patients with GDM. This was diagnosed based on the two-step process. Now, out of this 312 patients, 205 were diagnosed based on two abnormal values on the 100-gram GDT, like, just like normal. And 107 were diagnosed just based on an extremely elevated 50-gram. Like, hey, here's your 50-gram. Holy crap. I mean, you got like a your, your, your postprandial on, on a one hour was like 200. Like, fail. We'll kill you if we give you the 100 grams. So you just get a diagnosis of, of diabetes. Okay. That's very fair and reasonable. So the majority were diagnosed based on the two-step process, but some failed so bad. And, and that's totally acceptable to do that. Uh, to go, it was such a bad value. It was grossly abnormal that you just get the diagnosis of GDM. The primary outcome was diabetic control based on blood sugar logs from the clinic notes and the need for any medications, including metformin. This also included glybride. Remember, this is 2012, 2017. Glybride has now been exnade, so don't do that one. And insulin. By the way, it's not that glybride is bad. It's just that you have much better control with metformin and glybride can have some issues. So ACOG says, yeah, I get that there's data for both hypoglycemic agents. Stick with metformin that has better data. Uh, there's less issues, uh, better control and prevention of macrosomia. So let's stick with that one. Glybride is kind of off to the side, way, way off to the side. Specific patterns of test results were investigated then to look for the likelihood ratio of needing medical therapy based on which values originally were abnormal on the three-hour test. Listen to this, guys. Here's what they found. Very interesting. Those who had an abnormal fasting value along with another value, that's what that's you got two abnormals to get you the diagnosis, were 3.2 fold more likely to get uncontrolled sugars when they come back for eval. Hey, I've been eating well. I've been walking around. Yeah, but you're still at a 3.2 fold higher chance that your sugars are jacked. Okay, so that's one thing. When you take that and then look to see how many required medication, 6.6-fold higher rate of needing medication down the road. So if one of the abnormal values, according to this cohort, was that one of the abnormal values included your fasting, you were 3.2 times more likely to have uncontrolled sugars, even with diet and nutritional counseling and exercise, and 6.6 times more likely to require medications. Uh, wow, I mean, that's pretty significant. So they concluded, quote, patients with elevated fasting glucose levels on their 100 gram GGT are more likely to have uncontrolled GDM and require medical therapy. Women with three or more values that are abnormal under GTT were no more likely to require medication than women with only two elevated values, end quote. So let's stop there. So there's a lot there. Short of it is, wow, if you, if you failed, if you start off the game with already with a flag, with a foul, and you haven't even drank the dang Coke, uh, that's, you're likely going to require medications down the road. Okay, so that's the first thing. The good news is if you really tank the test, like you have three abnormal values and all you need is two for the diagnosis, 
you are actually no more uh, in need of medications compared to just those with two. So, and that's helpful for me because patients come back in our patient population, they typically have a higher BMI, they're, they're, they're somewhat sedentary. And they're like, oh my God, yeah, I've got three abnormal values. You know, is this, is this terrible? Well, yes, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you failed any worse than just failing. So you don't like fail, fail, you just fail. So, so if you have three abnormal values, you're not any higher risk of requiring medication compared to two. But if you have two abnormal values and one of those two of the two includes your a fasting value, you're more likely to get medication. Now, remember, this didn't actually look at, at overall details later on. It was just looking to see if fasting hyperglycemia was a risk factor for needing medication. That's it. Now, we're going to get into the other study that came out October 2023 that helped to answer this. Hey, if you start somebody on metformin as soon as you get in uh, two abnormal values, in addition to diabetic uh, education and nutritional counseling and exercise, does that change overall composite outcomes? We're going to get into that. So those are two different things. Should you start somebody immediately with a GDM diagnosis if they're fasting value is abnormal. If you believe that quicker time to sugar control is going to prevent fetal growth and prevent macrosomia, then yes. And that is absolutely what most of the data show. Let's not waste one to two weeks because we want to control that baby's weight so we don't end up uh, over 4,000 grams. Definitely, we don't want to get uh, to over 4,500 grams where a C-section is now in play. So yeah, and, and most of the data show, and that's why we give medication therapy for GDM when they need it because... Uh, we're going to try to prevent excessive fetal growth. That's valid. But here's the catch. Does it change overall composite? Remember, composite outcomes mean all of the different pictures as one puzzle when you're looking at it, not just fetal weight as one puzzle piece, which is still good to, to reduce, but overall composite. And so that's where things get confusing. I'm a big fan, obviously, of, of, of good glycemic control. I, I mean, I follow the college stance. That's good medicine. It's good science. Get that sugar under control. Fasting should be under 95. One hour should be under 140. Two-hour postprandial should be under 120. And if you've got 30% of abnormal values, titrate your medications. And if you're not on medication, start medication. So I, I do I have no beef with starting medications immediately on a three-hour glucose tolerance test if one is, is an abnormal value, the old Parkland protocol. That's totally fine. However, number one, don't just assign, assign them to meds and then put them on their way. And, well, you're on meds already. No, you still got to be aggressive. You still got to make sure that their sugars are in range and increase metformin as necessary up to the maximum of about, uh, based on who you read, either 2,000 milligrams a day or 2,500 milligrams a day, which is the most conventional. Okay, uh, and and that's, remember, new data has shown uh, whether even adding insulin on top of metformin um, uh, has any advantage. It doesn't seem to have mo uh, any real advantage for composite outcomes, but maybe, again, uh, helps prevent excessive fetal growth. So here's a short of it. Based on this study, again, published February 17th, it does show that those with fasting hyperglycemia, along with another abnormal value on their GTT, likely are going to, you're rolling the dice, you're going to have to start them on meds down the road anyway. So why not just start at the beginning? Early initiation of medication for reduction of fetal weight gain is valid. But we're going to get into in just a minute about the composite outcome because that's a little different. That seems to be a little bit more disappointing. And I'll get into that in just a moment. But before I get into that one, let me read you this, uh, this publication from November 2008 out of Diabetes Research and Clinical Practice. Okay, 
So this is 2008, a totally different group of authors. Listen to this title. Is fasting glucose level during oral glucose tolerance test an indicator for the need of insulin for gestational diabetes? Guys, it's the exact same thing. Remember what we've said many times over in this podcast? There's nothing new under the sun. Damn, we've already known, we already knew this. We knew that fasting hyperglycemia is a risk factor. It's like wave, the body's waving the flag. Hello, I, I need help. I'm, I'm, I'm in a kind of, I'm in trouble here. Uh, you're going to have to start me on meds now or we can wait two weeks. What do you want to do? That's what the body's saying. But if you go back to November 2008 in diabetes research and clinical practice, here's what they found. Um, yeah, we found that fasting glucose level on the oral glucose tolerance test is a predictor of the need for insulin treatment in GDM. Let's just stop there. Now, here's a question that you may have. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Chapa. Let's go back to this new publication. Let's leave this one alone because this one from 2008 used uh, the National Diabetic Data Group cutoff on the three hour, which is a fasting value of 105. If you use the carpenter calcin criteria, which is the one with the lower thresholds, the fasting value is uh, 10 points lower on the first uh, set of values, so it's down to 95. So if your question is, wait a minute, this February 17th publication from AJOG MFM, when they found fasting hyperglycemia on the three-hour, which scale did they use? Was it the National Diabetic Data Group or carpenter calcin I mean, that would make sense, right? Because in this 2008, they used the National Diabetic Data Group, the higher numbers. But the answer is, it doesn't matter. If you're going to call it fasting hyperglycemia, it's fasting hyperglycemia. If you're going to fail the fasting value on whichever scale you fail the fasting value. Now, obviously, you're going to have much more specificity if you use the 105 National Diabetic Data Group criteria compared to carpenter calcin, which uses the 95. Does that make sense? So that's why, it, and it's important not to get into that. The important thing is to remember, if the fasting value is abnormal, which on whichever scale you use, that's an independent predictor of the need of medication down the road. And it's been looked at both ways, whether you use 95 as a cutoff with carpenter calcin, or if you use 105 with National Diabetic, National Diabetic Data Group. It doesn't matter. The idea is that fasting hyperglycemia by whatever is your standard interpretation of the three-hour GTT. All right, everyone, now let's look at this because we're going to start wrapping this up because there's there's really not a lot of meat here. I mean, the idea is, look, if you have a fasting value that's abnormal in GTT plus another value that's abnormal, it's a six-fold higher risk that you're just kicking the medicine can down the road. So it's up to you. I mean, you start them initially on metformin, give them the education, still do nutrition. This does not take the place of nutritional counseling, dietary input, and exercise. It's that you want to kick the can down the road, and then start them in, uh, in metformin in two weeks or just start because the odds are against them. It's not 100%. It's just rolling the dice that you're probably going to start them later on. Uh, and there's no right or wrong answer to that. I'm just presenting this to you based on the data. This is the old Parkland protocol that, that these people are talking about. And it's not uh, Parkland authors, just FYI. Okay. But here's a question. Does starting metformin therapy early after a GDM diagnosis, at the usual time, we're not talking about first trimester or you know other weird stuff. We're talking about 24 to 28 weeks. Ooh, you, you've got a diagnosis of GDM. Let's just start your medicine now or just wait to see if you fail. That's actually been 
looked at, and there's data for that. That was published in JAMA Network in, on October the 3rd, 2023. Y'all, that's not long. That's the end of last year. This was an RCT. Now, I'm going to tell you what they found because it's a little disappointing-ish. Okay, It's disappointing in the composite, which really didn't do anything. But the composite is the, the total puzzle. Right. If you take out the one puzzle piece of macrosomia, you're like, hey, that, that that's less. Okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. Uh, I don't want to have a, a big old baby that can get stuck, and I need a section just for that. So I'll take that. Um, so it depends on on how you look at does it help or not. Does it help four feet away? Yes. Does it help in overall composite issues? Probably not. Not according to this RCT. And I'm gonna explain that. But there's a catch here. Okay, so this RCT, look how this was done. This was, first of all, hey, you're taking a sugar test, and this was not a two-step. So that's the first difference from what we're talking about here. This was based on the uh, 75-gram one-step test, okay, the the two-hour test, not the three-hour. So that's the first difference. Second, it had nothing to do whether they had fasting hyperglycemia or not. If you failed failed the one-step 75-gram two-hour test uh, by one abnormal value, then you were either randomized to immediately start metformin in an escalating dose until max or do regular nutritional, diabetic, uh, and exercise counseling and then start if you need it. Okay, that's how this group went down, all right? So, uh, and did it change any outcome? So it didn't, it was not using the three hours. So it's a little different what we're talking about. And this was not based on fasting hyperglycemia uh, per se. This is just, you failed the 75 gram, Let's randomize patients, and this was double-blind, placebo-controlled, so that some patients had true uh, metformin, others had a placebo pill. It was brilliant. It was very well done, uh, and they were randomized in a one-to-one ratio. Now, those that had metformin who were randomized at diagnosis of GDM to metformin had an escalating uh, regimen, so like start slow and then increase, and they, they maxed them out. That's how they had standardization of therapy. Because if not, you'd have some at 500 milligrams, some at 1,000. They're like, nope, you're going to get med. You're gonna, I'm going to give you some med. And so they slowly increased, so stepwise progressive, until they hit 2,500 milligrams, 2.5 grams, the maximal usual dose of metformin. All right, so what happened here? What were the results? Those who had rapid initiation of medication therapy did have some advantages, okay? There were some some neonatal advantages starting quickly. That included a smaller percentage of babies that had a birth weight of four kilos, had a lower proportion of fetal weights above 90th percentile. Uh, And that's good. That's what we wanted. We've already known that, is that it's going to put a lid on maximal fetal growth. So that's good because shoulders dosha sucks. So that's a good thing. And it did not increase uh, NICU admissions. Uh, additionally, as that secondary outcome looking at neonatal stuff, we'll tell you maternal outcomes here in a minute, but in those who had rapid initiation of, of medication therapy, there was no difference in respiratory distress in the kid, jaundice requiring phototherapy, major congenital anomalies, or neonatal hypoglycemia. All good stuff. Now, so you're like, okay, well, that's a win. Wait a minute. It is a win. That's good. But when you take a look at the primary outcome, the, the composite outcome of the other stuff, uh, it didn't make much difference. Quote, the primary composite outcome was not significantly different between groups and occurred in 56% in the metformin group and 63% in the placebo group. You're like, wait a minute. Placebo group had, had a higher percentage of, of 
of adverse issues. Yes, but it's not. It didn't make a a, a, a statistically significant difference. Okay, the p value was zero point one three. So the question is, well, what is that primary composite outcome? The primary outcome, which was a composite of insulin initiation uh, or a fasting glucose that's higher at 32 or 38 weeks. Meh. So you're like, wait a minute, what now? So yeah, so starting, starting metformin quickly didn't actually change the rate of who actually needed insulin initiation down the road or who had a lower rate of fasting hyperglycemia at 32 or 38 weeks. So, I mean, okay, I'll take that. I mean, so some people, metformin didn't do the job. Uh, You got to add insulin to that, fine. But remember, you still had that advantage of less fetal weight gain. So I I read this. When I first read this, I'm like, hey, I'll take it. It seems to be kind of a win. It's not a total loss. But nonetheless, what gets all the headline was, quote, Early treatment with metformin was not superior to placebo for the composite primary outcome. Pre-specified secondary outcome data, remember that things like fetal weight, support further investigation of metformin in larger clinical trials, end quote. So it's a little mixed. That's what you take home. The take home uh, answer of this is should you start metformin early? Well, it's a little mixed. Yes, it's probably going to keep fetal weight from getting really high, which is good. But other things may not change very much. And if you take a look at the entire data and what others have shown is that, well, rates of preeclampsia, C-section may not be overall different, but it does seem to reduce fetal weight. So, So the data is mixed. However, as a way to prevent excessive fetal growth, which is linked to labor abnormalities and definitely linked to shoulder dystocia and or the need for C-section, then then that can be considered a win. So it's all how you look at the data. But I'm looking right now at medical news out of life sciences. Okay, so this is medical news website, medicalnews.net. This came out October the 4th, 2023, surrounding the time of this publication of this this article, right? Uh, Listen to the headline. Early metformin therapy falls short in curbing gestational diabetes woes. Man, I mean, if you read that and you don't actually know the article and know all the details, you're like, well, that sucks. I, I guess I won't start it at time of that diagnosis. But that, that's, that's not really what it's saying. Yes, the composite, okay, it didn't really prevent the need for insulin. Uh, maybe kick the can down the road a little bit, but the composite really didn't change. But you still prevented excessive fetal weight. That's a win. So this is why, guys, whenever you read something on a medical headline, go, hmm, Wonder what they found. Well, how? What are they looking at? Because the truth is, is that the results were a little mixed. It favored fetal weight, but didn't really change a lot of the other stuff. Isn't that interesting, guys? You see how that statement, beauty really is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, this is so true here. I mean, look at this headline. Early metformin therapy falls short in curbing gestational diabetes woes. That sounds so terrible. Well, no, no, wait a minute. It, it, it's mixed. And so I, I think to, this is the, the proverbial throwing the baby out with the bathwater. It didn't fix everything. They still required some insulin. Uh, and pfft. I mean, that's super pessimistic. No, no, no. It was mixed. And there are some benefits here, mainly at keeping fetal growth uh, from getting out of hand. It, is that wild or what? I just think it's so interesting the way people 
not want to say spin, but interpret some of the data. That's why it's super important to look at everything uh, as a group and as a, as a composite of all the data. And that's what we're trying to do on this podcast. All right, before we leave this, yes, there was some kind of bummer things to it because pregnancy-induced hypertension, antepartum, preeclampsia risk were no different between the two study cohorts, okay? So, yes, that kind of sucks. C-section rates didn't actually differ between the groups. That's interesting. But as it states right here in this commentary, neonatal secondary outcomes differed slightly between cohorts with the metformin uh, group infants depicting lower mean weights than the placebo group. So, uh, yes, you can keep fetal weights down. It wasn't that important clinically. Again, it just makes the point. It's all how you look at the data. Well, let's start bringing this home and let's wrap this up because... What are we supposed to do with this? As you all know, every time we present something that's a little conflicting, we try to make sense of it. So here it is as we wrap this up. When you have a diagnosis of gestational diabetes, ACOG prefers the two-step using the 50-gram followed by the 100-gram because that does have the advantage on the three-hour of diagnosing impaired glucose tolerance as well as GDM versus just the one abnormal value that gets you the diagnosis of GDM on the 75-gram one-step. But the point is, screen for diabetes universally, period. Let's do that. Let's all agree to that at 24 to 28 weeks. Let's do that. Controversial, even though ACOG says to screen earlier in some high-risk patients. Not everybody agrees with that because earlier treatment outside of 24 weeks, meaning before 24 weeks, can likely has mild to very moderate uh, benefits that aren't mind-blowing, okay? Uh, because most of the fetal growth, of course, happens after the uh, the second trimester into the third trimester. So the first take-home lesson is, yes, screen for diabetes at least 24 to 28 weeks. So let's do that. Second is when you have a diagnosis, if you fail with two abnormal values, and one of those two values is a, is a fasting, consider, look at the patient holistically. What is her age? What is her BMI? Does she have a history of PCOS? Does she have a history of GDM with every pregnancy, for heaven's sakes? I mean, you're gonna, you know you're going to start that patient on medication down the road. Start her now and get ahead of it. Also remember that this includes a test for look for other endocrinopathies, including uh, thyroid issues. So we get a TSH as part of our protocol. Get a hemoglobin A1C. Get a baseline uh, urine uh, for protein. All of this stuff. Take care of the patient. And if you don't start medication initially, and of course, the most standard now outside of insulin is, is metformin because it's easier to use. If you don't do that, give that nutritional, diabetic, and exercise encouragement to start ASAP. Have the patient check sugars and then treat to target a fasting of 95, one hour of 140, or two hours of 120. With, with the most conservative being if 30% of those values are abnormal, start that patient on medication and be aggressive. Increase... Uh, progressively to keep those sugars down to have a beneficial effect on baby's weight. Remember that all gestational diabetic patients, just like frank diabetic patients, pre-existing diabetics need that estimated fetal weight around 36 or 37 weeks to see if you are on that growth trajectory for uh, LGA slash 90th percentile slash uh, macrosomia, which will dictate delivery options. All right, podcast family, that's all we got. Let's bring it home. All right, everyone, we have summarized new findings from a publication from AJOG MFM that came out on February the 17th, 2024, the title of which is 
predicting the need for medication in gestational diabetes using the 100-gram glucose tolerance test. The first author is Scrivani. As always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.